Hello, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Janice Forsyth, sitting in a tent packed with people eager to hear from the writer, described by a certain Irvin Welsh as one of the most talented, original and interesting voices around. And so say all of us. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Alan Warner. They like him. Alan has written five novels. Let me remind you, the acclaimed Morven Collar, winner of the Somerset Mom Award, These Demented Lands, winner of the Encore Award, The Sopranos, this is tedious, all these awards, mm. winner of the Saltire Society, <laughs> Scottish Book of the Year Award, the surreal black comedy, The Man Who Walks and The Worms Can Carry Me to Heaven. He's a writer who can use the most beautiful and poetic language to describe some of the most unbeautiful scenes in literature. He's a Scot whose homeland and hometown run strongly through his writing, but he's now finding similar inspiration, I think, and uh, presumably much better weather in Spain. So, Alan, what on earth made you give up Drich, rainy Scotland for sunny Spain? Well, I mean, it's all, I've always gone to Spain on holiday. It was one of those polar opposites of Scotland. So uh, it's not as if it's something I've discovered anew. So it was just... Uh, the dangerous thing about being a writer is... You genuinely are set free as to where you locate yourself if you're doing okay and if you don't have kids at school or whatever, which, which we don't. So it was Ireland first, and it was really Ireland I relocated from rather than, mm. rather than Scotland. But it was just a, it's that temptation if you don't have to you know, go to the office in the morning, the temptation is to settle down elsewhere. You've got that freedom. Uh, it's interesting, though, I mean, the, the obvious conclusion to jump to with the latest book, The Worms Can Carry to Me Heaven, mm. it's set in Spain, so one imagines that you, you've been inspired by perhaps writing there, but as you're saying, as a writer, you know, perhaps you inhabit your own world. I mean, mm. is writing writing, or are you influenced by the place that you're writing in? It's an interesting question, because you need to I mean, Morven Collar, parts of that are set in Spain as well, and we're talking over ten years ago now with that. So I think it's just, uh, I think you tend to write about things that happened seven, eight, nine years ago. So there's a kind of uh, echo delay on what you write about. And strangely, I kind of started this book before we settled in Spain full time, which we only did recently. So I don't, I don't think it's as immediate as that. I think usually you're writing about things that are, have been on your mind or experiences five, six, or I do, seven years ago. Why do you think that is? Is it a, some kind of filter? I don't know. I think it's just uh, being alive. I think life is a bit like that. I remember when I first went to Dublin, I ran into uh, Dermot Healy, he's a very fine <coughs> Irish writer. And he said to me, oh, do you think now that you're living in, in Dublin it'll affect your, you know, your the way you write, using the Scottish voice, using Scottish dialect. And I said, no, no, of course, it won't, it won't affect it. It's all seared in my brain forever. But pretty quickly, uh, I started to stop using the Scottish dialect voice as much in my work. So whether that was just I had new interests, new experiences, wanted to try mm. different directions with my work, or whether it was uh, you know, the location that I wasn't hearing those voices every day, uh, I'm not sure. But it, it's an unconscious I think cause so. and effect or process. I think it, I think it must be because you keep, you keep trying to move on, or I do, I keep trying to do new things with each book just because I'm restless and I get bored. So a change of location is, 
That was a good thing, I think. How are you feeling being back here, incidentally? Because it's a wee while since you've done this book festival, isn't it? I feel cold. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're getting into the... F I mean, you're a famed... Uh, you know, I don't know if you're still you know, settled down, married in Spain, but you know, we used mm. to always read interviews with you and you were kind of Mr Party Animal. Well, like a few beers. I don't know. I think that was <coughs> purely an act for the journalists. Ah. Mm. They just arrived at the wrong time. <laughs> no, uh, I used to like a drink. Uh, <laughs> I still do. So have you got into true. the festival vibe? You were at the film festival last night. Yes, yeah. Uh, I've been here two days, I think. I started to catch a cold after 18 hours. <laughs> that I can still feel coming on. I went to see Hallam Foe at the, the premiere, which was nice. And... Uh, there was a little partying, and then there was a bit more partying. And so um, I think the fact I'm here is a matter for medical science. Because <laughs> it's interesting just to reflect, it was five years ago, wasn't it, that uh, Lynn Ramsey's adaptation of Morven Call, I think, opened the film festival? Uh, it was five years ago. It was a few ago. years ago. Yeah. Uh, and there was a real buzz uh, about that film, and of course, you know, a lot of speculation about whether any of the rest of your books would be adapted for the big screen. I'm certainly slightly mm. confused about what's happened. Something like The Sopranos, maybe that's the most obvious one uh, to make that transformation to the big screen. I remember when The, the Sopranos reached the telly <laughs> and people were talking about it. I was like, great, Alan Warner's The Sopranos ah. is on telly, fantastic. It's yeah. a big budget thing. And of course, I mean, James Gandolfini was good, but it wasn't quite as good as uh, the film of yours. But, um, the latest I'd read was that Michael Caton-Jones was going to be directing the film. W what is happening? Well, he, uh, there was a kind of, that was a Hollywood thing. It was bought in Hollywood in 1998. And he bought the, he bought the book. Edinburgh Festival Sound Effects. Yeah. Uh, and it was kind of strange because when that book came out, the Sopranos TV thing just started. And as an aside, I remember they were selling it in New York. It had just been published in, in New York. and. Uh, people were going in and going, ah, The Sopranos, uh, I'll just <laughs> buy this. And off they went with, with a book that's about Scottish schoolgirls in a Catholic <laughs> school, in dialect as well. And in Barnes & Noble, the American bookstore, the, the manager there said to me, but the amazing thing is, no one's brought them back. <laughs> so it was a kind of... And then the, it became a huge... Uh, the Sopranos TV series quite rightly became a big success. It was really odd timing, wasn't it? It was strange, yeah. And Michael Caton-Jones had just bought it, so he just said, I think we'll have to change mm. the title. And then there were, it went through that usual development hell thing, lots of different scripts. Uh, Alan Sharp, the great Scottish screenwriter and novelist, he did a script. I did my own script. And I think... Michael's thing is he's worked in Hollywood a lot. He's used to very high standards, you know, best cameras, best equipment. He doesn't like to cut corners on the budget. And he wants a budget, as far as I know, that's kind of beyond reasonable for making a film with no star vehicles and all the rest. So I think he's holding out to try and, try and get the money. I get a call from him every year or so, <laughs> from Rwanda or somewhere where he is. So he came back and made Basic Instinct too. <laughs> you know, I kind of said, you know, how can you be working with Sharon Stone when you could be working with me? <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's a possible character in The Sopranos that could be played by, by Sharon Stone. <sighs> Maybe one of the Mother Superior, yeah. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah. Uh, any other of the, the books, any 
warned on any of those? Well, I, films? Uh, hot off the press, the news with uh, the man who walks is Irvin Welsh's film company, Four Ways, bought the, the film rights some time ago and they've been working hard to get the finance together. And uh, I think it was a meeting yesterday and it looks like Billy Connolly has said yes to play the man who walks. Did you hear that, Bjorn? Things could, you know, I don't believe everything until the first day of photography, but uh, fingers crossed it'll, it'll all go. With Irvin Welsh directing? That's the a, that's a thing, Irvin wants to direct it. And he had a film, a short... How did they know I was here? <laughs> An 18-minute film yesterday at the film festival, it was fantastic, uh, which Irvin both wrote and directed with uh, Dean Kavanagh. And it's a fantastic piece of work. So, I mean, I think it'll be interesting. It'll be exciting. That to must have been a sigh of relief for you, though, when you saw that it was good. Oh, I've seen his holiday snaps. <laughs> He's obviously talented in that, in that line. So, I mean, it'll be exciting. I mean, what a thought. So do you think that, I mean, it's impossible to predict, but do you think that's perhaps more likely to happen because it's closer to home than the development hell of Sopranos continuing? Yes, I think so. I mean, good. it looks, looks set to go. I mean, Michael said nine years or something so well, I've stopped kind very of exciting news very exciting news I really hope that happens but since you just to reflect on it you know in Irvine Welsh because when you first emerged you were very much pigeonholed by, by lots of members of the press it's mm. always easy to do that you know he writes about drugs the drugs experience so he's mm. part of this chemical generation I suppose one of the perhaps one of the few good sides about getting older um, is that you, you write more books you get more of a reputation and, and the pigeonholing is, is harder to do can't take drugs <coughs> anymore. Really? Well, I mean, that was just the whole, I think it's a bit of a red herring, the, the, that whole drugs issue about writing about a sector of society where that wasn't particularly unusual and, and isn't in certain sectors of society particularly unusual. I think it's, uh, you know, it's just reflecting aspects of social reality. I, I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was controversial. It doesn't, you know, it's like, Use of drugs takes place in the books, but yeah. use of legs takes place, use of head. It's just, you know, there's clouds in the sky. It's just the landscape. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the way things are. I really want to talk to you about uh, the latest book, but before we do that, and I think it is a wee bit of a departure for you, um, stylistically mm. and in other ways, but before that, can we just go back to um, chapter one of your life um, <laughs> and what first turned you on to... To books because I believe your family were not particularly bookish. What no, did it? No. Well, well, books. Uh, I didn't read at all till I was about fifteen, and uh, I just picked up a book out of out of the newsagents. You know, you're that age and you're a bit curious. And uh, there was a copy of Andre Gide's The Immoralist, Penguin Classics, and a copy of Albert Camus' The Outsider. And we looked on the back, and <clears throat> it always kind of hinted at lascivious goings-on, <laughs> unconventional sexuality. Those French. Yeah, it's like, oh, French, wow. So I took them home, and I remember reading the Gide especially, and I thought it, you know, I started reading it looking for smut, really, you know. <laughs> but then I kind of got sucked into it and read more and more and more, and eventually I, I found myself getting emotionally involved. I mean, that's a devastating book about a man who marries not for love but for social decency and the girl he falls in love with dies of tuberculosis coughing up huge clots of blood and at the end i remember literally just shaking when i'd when i'd finished the book and i didn't realize books could do that to you that for me that was a completely new experience 
I, I thought books were, you know, thrillers about James Bond. I didn't realize you could have a huge emotional reaction. And that was it. I was addicted from then on. And from then on, were you, were you reading other similarly emotional books? Are we just quite Catholic mm. with your taste, e picking Catholic, up anything? Anything and everything. It's still the same. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm well read, but I, I, well, I read six books at a time. Really? Yeah, it's, it's hopeless. And you can keep track of them. Because yeah. I remember, you, it's great to actually see you, because I think the first time I met you was when Morven Collar came out. And so now you can clarify for me. I've always got this memory of you, but you know, memory does strange things. Um, that you said to me, you'd had one book published, but I'm sure you said to me, I've got lots of, lots of other books ready to go. Mm. So I'd imagined all these books completely written, manuscripts in a drawer somewhere, or was the truth that you had plans for the other books? <clears throat> I think it's that old, I think that's a protective thing. I had plans for other books and I'd started another book, but the main, the main crux of that is that I've been working on a book for 10, 11, 12 years, uh, set up in the Highlands, which is, it's only really three quarters of the way through. But what happened with that book was, after about five years of being into it, it was set in the 1980s, I decided to change the setting. So I had to, it was meant to start in 1980, but I decided to start the book in 1973 as well, when I was just a kid. I don't know anything about being a teenager in 1973, although my sister was, was a teenager then. So I had to do a massive amount of research. So I kind of, when I feel a bit insecure, I go, ah, yeah, and then there's my big book. Uh, <laughs> but the big book is a mess, you know, it, it needs, another 10 years of work, I would say. And there, wa there was a, another novel that is kind of more or less complete, but, uh, but sort of abandoned as well. But that's it. And there's also that danger that you have to be careful of, uh, I stopped talking about great books in my drawer because there's a danger you talk those books away, literally, mm -hmm. and you talk your ideas away. So it's important just to, uh, just to keep working mm. on, on new stuff all the time. And even though, I mean, you've only moved to Spain uh, a few months ago, though, as you say, you've been sort of going backwards and forwards. Um, is Scotland and, and, you know, your origins from a, a village near Oban, um, mm. is that still with you no matter where you are? Is Scotland still important to you? Completely, yeah. Yeah, it's important in terms of Scot Scottish literature, which, you know, is what I feel uh, grounded in and, and, and curious about and passionately in love with. And in terms of the place, yeah, I mean that, that's what this big book is about, really. It's, uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it's obsessed with that area. It's uh, obsessed with, uh, with that landscape. So in a way, that's also a kind of uh, having that around as a kind of uh, safety valve. For instance, you know, obviously this has nothing to do with Scotland. Mm -hmm. This new novel whatsoever. And if you feel a wee bit homesick, you can go over to the other yeah. one. And, I can work on the Scottish book a bit. Sounds like, so there's a bit of a parallel between Alan Warner the reader and Alan Warner the writer. You know, six books on the go as a reader and a few books on the go as a writer. <laughs> well, you know, indecisive, I suppose. <laughs> I've always felt like a reader who, who writes. I've never felt like a, like a writer. I know it sounds insincere, but it's true. I tell taxi drivers that I, I work with computers, <laughs> which is true, you know? <laughs> I just, I don't know how to work them, but I work with them. <laughs> Why do you tell taxi drivers that? Because Morven Collar is very difficult to speak through that wee microphone thing. <laughs> I would say, Mar Mar Marvin what? Morven Collar. And then you get on to 
these demented lands. And it's easier just to say you work in computers. <laughs> or medieval history, if they really... So it's only taxi drivers you say that to because of the wee microphone? People on planes, a bigger issue? people on trains. Uh, but you just said just you feel easier. more like a reader who writes. So is there a is there a deeper thing? Do you feel you're not really quite a writer yet, or no, no? I, I think you're always learning. Nothing's ever finished. You always uh, you always want to make your style and the tone of your work better, or, or, or I do. Uh, so everything you know, everything feels like a progression. You think you're getting better. You read a book. You I don't read much of my old stuff, uh, but when I do pick it, pick up the odd thing and look at it, sometimes you see something that you you wish you'd written differently. Uh, sometimes you like what you see, and sometimes you hate what you see. So, yeah. but you always love your latest book. <laughs> right. So well, let's talk strange. about the latest book. Uh, the worms can carry me to heaven. Its protagonist, mm. Manolo Foyano. That's an Italian accent for a Spanish name, sorry about that. Um, and he runs an architectural design company. He's handsome, successful, opinionated, fastidious. He's always observing himself and describing his stuff, his designer booty that he has. Um, he's so pedantic, I really wanted to give him a good slapping. Mm, me um, too. But at the same time, I, at the same time, I liked him. Yeah, I'm he's very really, fond of him. You are fond of him. He's, he's an odd guy. Where, where did he come from? I don't know. Uh, I don't think I write about myself at all. Uh, I'm not an autobiographical writer. Uh, but I wanted... All the characters I'd written about before had been in some way insecure, Marvin Collar and these demented lands. The Sopranos are schoolgirls uh, with a future ahead of them, quite insecure. man who walks as you know, guys wandering in the highlands with no financial security. N no roots, in a sense. Everyone's very much a wanderer in those early books. And I wanted just a, a kind of middle-class guy who was successful, who had everything that we're told life is about these days, who had social standing, who had material success, mm. who was relatively well-to-do, mm. you could say wealthy. I wanted to, I wanted to study a, a character like that, but also to kind of break him down, to, to see what was underneath it all. And also he's a, he's a melancholy man as well. I had different titles for the book when it started. Uh, the Celibate was one. Because despite this kind of air of uh, uh, a ladies' man about him, if you look at the text carefully, uh, he hasn't actually been with a partner for, for years, it seems. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were, there, were other, there were other approaches I wanted to take. It was a much longer manuscript uh, when it was completed, but I cut down, I cut down loads to make it, I thought it was tighter for the changes that were made. So it was really uh, looking at a guy who's very fastidious, very self-involved, and then suddenly something life-changing happens to him, which is when his, he's told that he, uh, it's more subtly couched in the book, but he's told he's HIV positive by his best friend who's a doctor. And that changes everything for him and leads him into this kind of reverie about the about the past, into well, memory. That revelation comes right at the beginning of the book. I mean, which might be a good. Aye, yes, first, I'll read the first reading. I'll read the epilogue as well, which is uh, from Saint Teresa of Avila, uh, her the life of, and then I'll begin the text about Foliana. This is just a a piece of of uh, epilogue I wanted to epigraph I wanted to use. 
There was then a nun in the house who was afflicted with a most serious and painful disease. She suffered from open sores on her stomach, which were caused by obstructions, and through which she discharged all that she ate. She very soon died of this. Now I saw that all the sisters were frightened by her disease, but for my part I only envied her, her patience, and prayed to God to send me any sickness he pleased, provided he sent me as much patience with it. Well, His Majesty heard my prayer, and within two years I too was ill. And then the text begins. The condition. The damn weather was strange too. There was no heat in that sun. It was just a big silver light. We'd arranged to meet at Thena's. I was at my favorite terrace table with a glass of carbonated water. I wanted coffee, but depending on Dr. Tanisi's news, perhaps I was not permitted coffee anymore. It could be my heart. I'd been trying to change to decaffeinated for years. I'd also been trying to change from carbonated to still water for around 20 years. I believe carbonated plays havoc with the digestion. My doctor and old friend Tanise walked quickly in his light suit, hands in the trouser pockets, head down as if in constant thought. When he looked up, he appeared surprised to see me, as if this were a chance meeting. He was always thus, even as a kid. It crossed my mind he looked old, so how did I look to him? We will walk. I nodded to the head waiter, making vague hand gestures, which were meant to mean I will pay for this later. The waiter nodded tranquilly. Strange weather, Denise said. Odd. No heat in the sun. I mumbled and I cleared my throat. Denise chose to take the walk along the edge of the beach by the railings, which are painted silver and yellow in this era. Beyond the fountain and the front of the Imperial Hotel, which my parents used to own. Tennis paused for us both to look up at that new ridiculous kinetic sculpture, an abstract, four-rusted thing, the expense covered by Town Hall. It had made the lousy local newspaper. The sculpture had featured hanging wind chimes, which sea breezes disturbed so much and every night, until the residents of the apartments across the National Road came with a ladder and a hacksaw. They chopped the chimes down and they hid them so they could sleep in peace. We paused briefly to look up at the sculpture's forlorn and stripped frame. It occurred to me Tennis may not have walked down by the beachfront since we were teenagers, the last summer before we both went away to university in the capital city, over 20 years ago. The year we won the snow race, him driving his father's old van. We had a tradition in our city of racing up into the mountains and hearing of the first snows there, building a snowman in the back of the van, or sometimes even on the roof of a car, then speeding back down to our city to parade through the hot streets, blowing the car horn, throwing fast-melting snowballs at the prettiest girls. There had been no mountain snow for years, I mused. Dr. Tinnis now showed a distracted, sort of amazed interest in the people on the beach. The condition! He almost shouted. I jumped. The condition? Your condition. There is a condition? I swallowed. Rushing seemed to come in my ears, as when I am deeply embarrassed. I am a hypochondriac, and I've always been ready for serious illness. 
I was made for it. It was gruesome to realize that my dread was not without a certain objective, final excitement and curiosity. The way in action movies, which I once used to watch as a kid, victims would stare dumbly at their, old, their own severed limb. I always made things happen in my life, but now something had happened unbidden. Illness, which I had always feared, had come at last like a new political regime. I'll just leave it there, mm. I think. Ah. Hey, we're just warming up. <laughs> but that's interesting just to, to hear that again, having, having read it, and it gives more of an insight perhaps into you know, his reaction to that news. Um, because I suppose his long-term reaction does seem odd. One imagines that he would become immediately incredibly melancholy and depressed, but instead, mm. as you say, you described it as a reverie, which is a nice way of looking at it. It's almost like slow flashbacks to to flashpoints in his life of, of, of love and encounters with girls and, and women. He has this horrible choice, really, of, uh, as you would in such a horrible situation, of uh, contacting his ex-wives and ex-lovers uh, to both warn them, but also, of course, to find out uh, who he could have caught the condition from. And he decides, rather appallingly, not to, not to contact anyone and just to go into this kind of personal hell, really. See, that's, why, that's why it's quite odd as a reader to quite like him, because that's a really terrible is, act, yeah. non-act. Although, of course, we learn later that... Yes. I don't... Mm. Uh, no, Alan, Alan, Alan's <laughs> tempted to tell you the ending, but I think I've persuaded him not to. Mm. You don't want to know the ending, do you? No, mm. good. Okay, <laughs> definitely don't want to. <laughs> um, and I think we also get an impression, even from that brief reading, of, of the, the style of the book. Um, and I was suggesting perhaps it's a, a, a departure for you, but in a sense, maybe it's coming back to, to Morven Collar. Mm. Um, it's, it's quite difficult to describe, actually. It's as if it's... It's a book he, written in English by a guy who doesn't yeah. speak English. And who, dis who really actively does not want to learn foreign languages. He yeah. hates English. Yeah. Again, it's like Morven Collar, it's a kind of distancing technique, but it's more fun this time because you can kind of uh, uh, have amusing fun with, with language more. But all his attempts, like me, I'm a dreadful linguist, and he is also, he hasn't learned English. So because this is viewed through a kind of filter, uh, I'm able to play with that and enjoy that uh, a lot better. So you enjoy that, that's a kind of byproduct of it, but presumably that's not why you're doing it, why you want the detachment? I think because everything I've written at the bottom is a kind of distrust and a suspicion of language underneath it, I think. You know, he's, you know, he's walking, he's talking about the weather. There's a world outside us, the world of sexuality as well, really. It's without language. It exists outside us, as, as the world is, and language is just a way of negotiating the world. And sometimes it lies to us, language. It doesn't tell the truth. It misleads us. You know, love, God. What, what do these words ultimately mean? So he's, he's trapped in this uh, in a kind of linguistic hell, really. And what's happening to him is, is beyond language. Yeah, and he's, he's a man who generally, it would seem, is quite out of touch with his emotions. So it's interesting. There's a paradox there, too, because 
he's out of touch with other languages too. He's not comfortable with that. He's, he doesn't seem comfortable with either realm. No, no, he deals in surfaces. I mean, he's an interior designer, so everything is about the look, the sheen, the corner, where the yeah. light switch is. It's a completely artificial kind of world. He's, he's even inserted a heater into the cistern of his toilet <laughs> so that he doesn't get condensation. On the, on the tank of his toilet. He is vile, actually. Mm. Which quite, I, there's one wee bit, I know I shouldn't read because yeah. you're, you're the, the writer, but there's one... No, little, please. Yeah, it's just because <laughs> it's an indication of uh, <laughs> how yeah. his particular passions about things. He hates radio, and I think since this is on the radio, it'd be quite good to read this wee paragraph. <laughs> He's in a bar, and the, the radio's playing loudly from two stereo speakers, and he says, um, I often imagine my ideal radio station... <laughs> It would have huge sections of dead-aired silence. The rooms of your home would become tense with a kind of expectancy. Then the presenter, when he or she actually had something worthwhile to say, would speak out a meaningful thought. Perhaps someone else would respond. Perhaps more silence. Perhaps just a ringing like a Buddhist bell. The radio presenter laughed. I hoped he secretly harboured profound, disturbing personal problems too. <laughs> well, Janice. <laughs> now you were saying it's not autobiographical. Do I detect perhaps? Is it a, a hatred of radio or just perhaps loud noise in bars when you're trying to have a relaxing, zen-like time? Yeah, it depends what radio station. Yeah, you know. good answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, now into uh, this man's life comes another man who initially he sees as a well, he hates them actually for various reasons. Uh, he's a, a Somali illegal immigrant who's come by boat from, from Africa. It's a yeah. highly unlikely relationship, isn't it? Strange, yeah, because he, uh, he sees this guy begging in the street, Ahmed Omar, uh, a Somalian refugee, and his, Foyana's attitude to beggars is he carries photocopied application forms for jobs in McDonald's with them, <laughs> and he hands them out to people who are begging in the street. So it's an un, uh, unlikely beginning to a beautiful relationship. And he gives this guy this, uh, this application form. And then he sees him, he, he has a beautiful apartment on the beach, and he sees this guy's actually living near where his apartment is, in one of the half-built apartments that, that festoon the whole coast. And he's bathing in the, in the sea. So he kind of tracks down his lair where he's living, and he finds where this guy's living. And, and he smashes it up in this kind of rage. I think it's because uh, Ahmed Omar is young and handsome, and Foyana's getting older and his life, love life is over. I mean, that's what he mainly kind of seethes about. Uh, he's lost this kind of ego and this pride. He can't believe that, that his, his love life is finished, mm -hmm. and uh, he's afraid. But slowly, the, uh, he, he has this kind of, I think he's broken down eventually. And he's filled with pity, and eventually he, you know, he, he goes to confront this guy, but ends up inviting him to come back and live in his, his big apartment. And he uses him, essentially, as a confessor to confess his life, to, to confess his, uh, his sins, in a sense, his failings and his, and his hopes. And they become, uh, they become friendly, but I didn't want to overplay the Ahmed Omar character. Uh, I, I had a lot of difficulty with it. And he had to remain a kind of uh, a kind of shadowy figure because, in a way, because of the twists of the end as well. There couldn't be too much of mm -hmm. him, so he remains a kind of shadow. But I wanted to, I wanted it to be like that. Well, I think you've got one or two readings that maybe illustrate. Well, first of all, perhaps their relationship. You know, the when he becomes the. Which one do you want to do first? Is the one where 
Well, uh, I don't... He's living with him, and there's another one which gives an account of his journey. Aye, I think I'll, I'll, I'll read uh, when Ahmed Omar... I mean, this is, you know, this is tough stuff uh, to think about, because it's mm. happening all the time. Uh, refugees from sub-Saharan uh, Africa are crossing or trying to cross into Spain all the time. Uh, mainly the Canary Islands now, they've given mm. up on, on the mainland because of the Coast Guard patrols. And hundreds are drowned every year. Uh, essentially thousands have, have died. And it's a very ugly, uh, ugly situation. And in Spain you see it, it's not, you don't see it in the media so much here, but it's in the media a lot in Spain because bodies are washing up on the sunbathing beaches and it's most inconvenient. So this is a section where Ahmed Omar has described his journey for, uh, uh, to try and get to, to Fortress Europe, really, uh, with other refugees. And this is a section where he crosses from North Africa over to, to Spain, although it's not really named against it's, it's ge geographically quite vague, but, but that's what it is. So this is when he's crossing with a Liberian friend and other people in a, in a Pantera raft, a very kind of makeshift lifeboat with an outboard late at night. Another night came for us to cross. We knew this night was real because there was no moon. It was as black as my skin. The wind was blowing on to far shores and the boatman was risking himself by being in the boat that night rather than on a calm, moonlit night. By then we had learned no real human traffic boat tries to land in your country on a night of full moon. We could also tell this was a real boat from how crowded it was. There were even three old women in African robes. The boat sat only 20 centimeters above the water. The Liberian and I just looked once at each other, then took off our new fake Rolex watches and dropped them over the side. I had only one book with me, but I still threw it over the side and pleaded with other people to throw useless things over as well, but none would. They clung on to the junk in their bags, even though its weight might kill us. One of the old women had a plastic deck chair. The boatman laughed, again the only one with a life jacket, and did not mind us talking, so I asked why he risked overloading the boat. Was he really being paid that much? He said he had already been paid, had given the money to his family, so it did not matter to him if he died, and that life was a curse, and he laughed again. All was well until we got closer to the middle of the straits where the two oceans meet. Out in the darkness, the surfaces of the seas began to swell up and the top of these hills of water, which one could only sense and hear, were so close sounding, I thought I could reach out and slap their cold flanks. Suddenly we could actually see the frightening breaks and boils of white froth way, way up, completely above us, as if we would be inundated and pushed beneath as if we were all riding on the backs of enormous whales. The old African women began to wail as they had never floated on water before, and people prayed in a mix of languages. Water was sometimes gushing in two or three centimeters over the sides of the boat, then thankfully not again for many minutes, but each time we believed we were doomed. We all had to bail out using anything we could, cups, baseball caps, hands, and I angrily grabbed the old woman's plastic deck chair and I cast it over the side. I remember it hit the water with a wet, cold smack, and though it was colored bright white and surely slightly buoyant, it became invisible in a single instant, as surely as if I had cast it into a sea of molasses. 
Finally, the other Africans understood, and they too began throwing excess items and soon everything out of the boat. Shoes, tins of food, a dead chicken, an electric torch, rolls of blankets, sunglasses, Western fashion magazines with, for a floating instant, thin, near-naked pale women on their wet pages, clattering cassettes and several small portable radios, a big bundle of wool with two protruding knitting needles. Yes, in the darkness, I saw float the largest bailing bucket, drinking glasses and mugs that also could have been used to help us bail. I called out, but it was too late, and our mad captain laughed. I saw a thermos flask go into the sea. The young man just in front of me, wearing a Brazil football top, panicked wildly and made the ultimate sacrifice. He peeled off his Nike training shoes and they went overboard. Someone tried to throw over the fuel tank, but the boatman screamed at her. After an hour, the huge flanks of water that lurked on either side of us seemed to be going down and the Liberian and I slumped, leaning forward, exhausted, our fingers bleeding from being dashed again and again against the rough wooden boat bottom in the centimetres of water and flipping handfuls out, knowing that if a large flood breached us, a centimetre of water could make the difference between the boat sinking beneath us or gaining those vital seconds to bail out more. The boatman kept assuring us that it would not be long, but then things changed again. There had been the lurking slopes of water and their swirling, terrifying summits, and then our wet skin and hair suddenly cooled, and we began to shiver as a wind hit us. There had been no wind before. That was what was eerie about the stubborn drops and the huge lifts of the conflicting sea surrounding our tiny vessel. I saw the boatman mutter to himself and look at his compass using the tiny torch he carried around his neck. Then I thought he had pushed his face into a big plate of soup he was eating. That is what I thought, but his face had dipped into black water. I saw color and light for the first time in hours because the boy in front of me with a Brazil football top had been pushed by the water and the back of his skull hit my forehead and teeth and I tasted salty but deliciously warm blood in my mouth. I tried to shout to the Liberian but I was alone in the cold dark sea. There was an explosion of white right in front of my eyes or I would not have seen it. Brazil was the only word I saw. The boy had not parted with his leather football with Brazil written on it, and I grabbed out and held onto it tight. I was astonished, not to be sunk, but at how all others had vanished in seconds, as if they had been made invisible. Since everything had been thrown from the boat, nothing floated or could be seen. I shouted out. I never saw anyone again. What I did see in all that black was a faint light, Without that light, I would have been lost, but there it was, watery, weak and distant, and the impression of being squeezed down by a low sky of clouds. Sometimes I thought it was an illusion, or the dying soul of the Liberian expiring on the water surface. I cried out his name in the dark. I did not want him to be wide-eyed, looking around, fearing the same spirit was coming for him. I wanted a good angel to come for my friend. Even through tears for my friend and the sad-faced old ladies, I had to keep that light before me as I kicked. Even to take my eyes off it for a moment would have meant disorientation and death. Yet I was no longer afraid. I was cold, but I was in no pain. 
Of course, I knew I had nothing to lose, and this gave me strength. Once you know how death feels for Yana, you cease to fear it as much. Sometimes I still dream of that light. I swim to it and it warbles before me, but it gets no closer. But in the Black Sea, that night, the light really got closer. I swore if I made it to land, I would identify that single light and kneel before it and bless it and thank it forever. But gradually it multiplied into two, three, four, many lights, too many to worship, the lights of your city. I swam in with the football stretched in front of me and I came ashore near here on the rocks with sand between them. I tried to find the exact place again, but I never could. I shook the white foam from my body and I fell on the sand, which I swear had the heat of the day still in it, and I rolled until it covered me like dried mud. Or when I was a boy and my swimming gang and we found that old dead elephant covered with a layer of flies so thick they were like a sheet of black satin. And we all ran away screaming when the sheet lifted as we came too close. That poor old elephant had come to die in that place, standing in the shade of a tree. But as he slept, killer ants climbed up inside his hollow trunk and ate him from within. Another, another Christmas story. Yes. <laughs> You're cheery, that's for sure. <laughs> but that's actually, it's so lovely to hear you read that because, of course, that's him telling it uh, to Foyana. So it's, it's yeah. nice to hear it uh, as well as have Like read a voice it. of conscience in a way as well because, because I think Ahmed Omar is a very good man as well. And you said just before when you were introducing that piece that, you know, the... There's quite a lot about it in the, this phenomenon in the Spanish press and, you know, these bodies washing up in pleasure beaches and it's Aye. inconvenient. You well, you can meet joke. these guys in the bars. You know, how is it treated by the Spanish press, though? And did you... I'm wondering how much, you know, reading you did in research. And Obviously, you, you go off into, into mm. poetry there, but you're really mm. depicting some extraordinarily realistic scenes. Uh, it's a mix, like, like the press of any country. There's liberal understanding sympathy and there's reaction uh, both sides uh, but but it goes on and we have to ask the questions you know you know, why people are willing to risk their lives to to come to Europe things are are very bad in Africa the title is, is beautiful uh, the worms can carry me to heaven I'd read that it was your mother yeah who came up with this more cheeriness it's yes, my mother my mother's words on her deathbed not her last words there was but she did say that because we were trying to organize the funeral because she was on the way out and we all knew it and so did she even though she was quite heavily sedated and uh i said mom uh, i know you're not a great believer but what do you want done for your funeral and she thought about it a few moments and she said ah, don't worry about it the worms can carry me to heaven i thought wow i mean i'm that's a writer for you. <laughs> Shameless, you know. She said other good stuff as well. She, one night she said, uh, my father had died a few years earlier, and she said, uh, said oh, Dad came to visit me last night, because she was on morphine, and uh, she'd, she'd, uh, she'd had a very bad stroke. And uh, 
she had complications with pulmonary compl complications and breathing problems. I said, oh, Dad came and, and visited me last night. I said, Mom, you know, Dad died five years ago. I don't think he came and, and saw you. She went, oh, he did. He was here. I said, no, 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 I don't think he was here. And she went, aye, he was here. And you know what? Heaven hadn't improved him. <laughs> so another good title. I haven't found a book for it yet. Yeah. Heaven didn't improve him. You we'll know. look out for that one. But it's funny <laughs> you're talking there about your mum and dad because uh, another important aspect of the book is, is uh, his childhood and his upbringing in a hotel because his mum and dad run a hotel, which, of course, ah. uh, you, <coughs> said, you mentioned it there, said, yeah, the, the Imperial. And it's, it's clear that you have that childhood experience of it because I always find hotels strange places I'm sure a lot of people here like me you know you have early summer jobs where you work in hotels and you see what it's like backstage and I'm sure it it must be very interesting out of season two and you evoke all of that too it's clearly ah, had, a, had a big impact on you I well it's funny because even though I grew up in a hotel which uh, which we lived in for a long time and then we moved out to a village but uh, it's 49 rooms so I think I say in, in this novel, like uh, that, that's an amazing playground for a kid. I mean, for your imagination as well. I mean, that's bigger than a palace. Imagine that. But the thing that you're struck by is, is absence, because the hotel was closed during the winter. And my folks, uh, you know, we'd go on holiday and stuff like that. When the hotel was closed, there's this weird sense of absence. Mm -hmm. And my father used to give me these things that were left behind, binoculars that only one lens worked <laughs> on. And, a walking stick and chest expanders with one thing. All these strange things that people had left behind. So, and he would bring me into the room, it was like Christmas. He'd bring me into his office, say, hey, look what they left behind. I haven't, here, have this, have this, have this. So it was a strange idea of, you never really saw anyone. It was like backstage, mm -hmm. like you say. You didn't really see the guests. There were presences, really. But a lot of the stuff I wrote about uh, the hotel, you know, because I could bang on about it for quite a while, I actually cut out. And there's only a few things that are in any way autobiographical. And this hotel is, well, it's in Spain. It's very, very different. It's a cheery hotel <laughs> with a big fountain in front of it and chandeliers. And yeah. it's all invented yeah. for dramatic reasons. And, and very useful, it turns out, when he gets to the stage where he wants to chat up girls and he can take them back to his place, <laughs> which does impress them. Um, I'm sure there are uh, people here who would be eager to ask a, a sure. question themselves rather than me hogging you. Uh, and uh, we'll maybe put the lights up a little bit and we have a young lady here with a microphone. So there's our first gentleman. If you don't mind waiting till you get the microphone, we can hear you loud and clear. Thank you. Hello. Um, one of the things I love about The Sopranos is how you've got so many um, characters of the same age and, and gender, but they're so unique. How did you go about creating so, so, so diverse characters? Uh, you just write and rewrite, basically. But that was one of that's one example where I did. I had a kind of logbook. I had a character, likes, dislikes, hair color, uh, star sign, Leo Pisces for some reason. I had a kind of list of each character. Not that much, just about two pages. And then you find you throw all that stuff away, and you kind of have. You know, you have certain uh, flag points for each character. And then they started to feel a, b a bit alive to me. And I could kind of, I could almost tell, what, you know, Amanda is one character, pain in the neck. You can, you can almost tell what she's going to say next. And once you're in that position, you're, it's very lucky because it starts to roll uh, a lot quicker. So I just kind of, I thought them out quite clearly and then wrote. And that's another thing, being a writer, you're, you're not a writer, you're a rewriter, or I am. I mean, I rewrite 
constantly. I don't think I've ever written a sentence and left it unchanged. Even in birthday cards, I can't do it. <laughs> my, e <laughs> my emails to Scottish Power should be collected in a, in a book. <laughs> so you rewrite and rewrite. And, Is that part of the reason why you... with the last two books has been a four-year gap? Are you becoming more and more of a rewriter? Uh, uh, no, I think I'm just becoming more lazy. Really? <laughs> I think it is. It's so time-consuming writing, or it is for me. Uh, it's sickening. I saw a Joseph Conrad manuscript in, in a museum, and there's three pages, just faultless in, in handwriting. It was Nostromo, first three pages, and then he like changed one word. And, uh, you know. Sick you shouldn't night. have looked at that. Mm, it upset me. Off. But uh, I solved myself by thinking it was fake, that he'd <laughs> gone away and made a, a fair copy, and he'd left that, and he'd thrown away the Tipex one, even though there was no Tipex in Conrad's day. But it's funny, that question about The Sopranos, because uh, something else you, you mentioned earlier, in a way, writing in the persona of this bloke slightly different for you because you, you've written as Morven and, and as the, the teenage girls in The Sopranos. Yeah. But there's one theory that, did you, is it true that you met your wife who was about 19 at the time, round about the time you were write, writing The Sopranos? Does yeah. that help you get into the, the heads of teenage girls? Pretty much, yeah, because uh, <laughs> she's younger than me and she had a bunch of mates and uh, uh, she had a lot of stories. So it did, uh, it, it did get me thinking. <laughs> it got me excited. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> Another question? Ah, all at once. That's a gentleman in the front row. Hello. Hi. It's been terrific so far. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm thinking about grammar. It's very much in the newspapers today, spelling and grammar. How, mm -hmm. did, how did you get connected? Were you connected with these things or had it moved on? to a no-grammar situation by the time you were at school. Grammar? Yes, and spelling. I'm not your man. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, that's, that's one of the interesting things about Scottish writing in the, you know, in the last 20 years, really. I mean, uh, unfortunately, uh, correct English to me is just a, it's just a foreign language. I, I wouldn't know where to begin. And that was a very liberating thing because uh, when you first read James Kelman, for instance, when I first read James Kelman, you, you realized, you know, I was totally intimidated by what correct English was. I was too scared to even uh, try to write a sentence because I knew it wouldn't be right. I knew the clauses would be different. I knew there'd be something wrong. Because you dogged school a lot, haven't you? Aye. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, once you read Kelman, you realise, well, you know, and even the narrative voice would be in a, in a Scottish voice. And it was liberating because you thought, well, you don't actually have to say things correctly because we don't speak grammatically correctly. So I'm quite, uh, I'm a uh, bit of a rebel about it. I don't think uh, correct grammar is in any way a tool to being a good writer. I think you have to have an awareness of language but that's something very different from, from correct grammar. And so I, uh, I don't remember any grammar lessons at school at all. I'm still confused about grammar, and I'm a completely hopeless speller as well. Dreadful. But so was Shakespeare and Hemingway. If you look at their manuscripts, dreadful spellers. But I don't think of you as a, a writer who writes ungrammatically. 
or bad grammar? Uh, well, it's that. It's the question of what you mean. I mean, it's that whole linguistic thing about correct English and incorrect English. Uh, James Kelman with sweary words in it uh -huh. and all the rest. It's it's a battle, you know, uh, fought and won. Uh, I don't think you need to, you know, there's a liberation now that writers can write the way their characters speak, the the characters can think that way. As American writers have done since yeah. time, since Faulkner and, yeah. and way yeah. beyond, since since Melville as well. We had two more hands raised there. I think it was a lady at the end of the third row. Just intrigued as to why you use um, descriptions for characters and not always names. What was the thinking behind that? Uh, des descriptions for characters and not names, uh, like nicknames. Or, or places like calling Edinburgh the capital, Aye. things like that. It's a kind of, I think it's because calling Oban the port and calling Edinburgh the capital, I think it's a sort of get-out clause that allows me to, to move things geographically when it suits me. And also, uh, I'm trying to, you're trying to create images in, uh, in the reader's mind. And the minute you say Edinburgh, you create a certain image that's limiting to me in some ways. I mean, I have used it, I will, I'll use those terms, but I prefer to things to be more vague, more amorphous and strange. And people are quite, you know, you feel a little uneasy about where exactly somewhere is, you know, where, where could it be, I think it's quite mysterious. So, uh, usually I'm not specific. Is that uh, also why in this like book, this. the condition as well, you say, you don't say HIV specifically? Yeah. I don't think the word Spain is used in this either. Foliana doesn't identify the name of a city or, or where it's from. I like to make it kind of vague. Uh, in the hope, <laughs> the vain hope, it, it attains universality. <laughs> 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 Which I'm sure it won't. There's <laughs> another gentleman at the, the back on this side. Hello, Alan. Um, I just wanted to quote back at you something you wrote once. Uh, oh, oh dear. Which you may, <laughs> you may be embarrassed at, I don't know. Um, you say, there are so many good books I've read but won't read again. <clears throat> to me, a great book is just one you'll read twice in this brief life. There are even some books you'll read three or more times. These are unspeakably good. If I could just write such a book for some unknown stranger, imagine. Um, well, you don't have to imagine any longer. I am an unknown stranger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you've cheered me up again. <laughs> Someone, I said that, I think it was in a newspaper, and uh, it was very nice because a few people sent postcards saying, uh, I've read your book twice, so, which is beautiful, you know. Uh, I can't, you know, it's, it's a, the biggest compliment you can get, really. It's, it's a short life. So to read a book twice is a, is a nice thing. Um, you, you said you're, you, you're constantly writing, you've got the big book and uh, the sequel to The Sopranos. Any idea roughly when you might expect the uh, next Yeah, the I'm next writing book? a sequel to Sopranos, which is very different. I don't want to give it away, but it's, uh, it's very a big change of scene. The girls are a few years older. That should be uh, May next year should be out if I am a good boy over the winter. <laughs> uh, the big book, forget it. Ongoing. <laughs> <laughs> You've got all that correspondence with Scottish power that keeps exactly. getting in the way, obviously. Yeah. 
gas board now I've got a problem with. But, but. Well, it's just been terrific talking to you. And you, Warren. yeah, uh, thanks a lot. I do hope you keep coming back to Scotland to see us all, and we look forward of to the course. next publication. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Warner. Thanks very much. <laughs>